Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. How people interface with technology is constantly evolving, but we're seeing big changes in the technology platforms themselves, including voice, AR, VR, robotics, and more. This means big changes in the user experience field, which is a growing but still relatively young discipline. How fluid is our UX expertise? How can UX practitioners move between mediums or technologies or disciplines? How can a game designer become a voice designer, for example? How do we even break out of those molds our work history has put us in? I wanted to explore these questions on UX Cake because they come up really frequently when I talk with UX practitioners. This week, I'm starting an occasional series on UX careers in transition, starting with voice design. I'll be talking with Cheryl Platz, who's a principal designer at Microsoft, and she's been a designer for some pretty high-profile voice platforms, including Cortana and Alexa. But she's also moved between voice-based design and visual-based design throughout her career. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks so much for joining us on UX Cake. Thank you. It's good to be here, Lee. Thank you for having me. This episode is primarily, um, it was the first in a, in a series of transitions within UX. So I wanted to start with your own transition. Just like in a nutshell, you started out as a designer in like a visual medium of UX for software and games and transitioned to voice design. And I'd love if you could give us just maybe the highlights and lowlights of those early transition days. Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, my I, I was trained in design, but uh, when I was a senior in college, those planes crashed into those towers and kind of sent my career in an unexpected direction for about four years in video games. But that was a uh, a cool way to start working with highly constrained devices and interfaces. Even when my role was more game designer production, I loved you know working on the Nintendo DS and and all the strange sort of interactions you could have with such an early touch plus voice system. And uh, that was that was my first experience with voice design. But it's I think it's also it was also very much a foreshadowing sort of thing in that uh, even then I, it was really multimodal voice. It was both voice and uh, graphical interfaces at the same time. And that's uh, that's been a kind of a recurring theme in, in my career as well. So even though I trained in uh, trained in traditional graphical user interfaces, as I think most practicing voice or multimodal designers did since they didn't, a lot of these voice interfaces didn't exist when we started. Right. Uh, my career sort of evolved that way. We were excited about Palm Pilots when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> that was a different kind of quote unquote natural user interface. We studied the graffiti sort of uh, language for handwriting interpretation. Super excited about that at the time. Uh, so, I, and when I, when I went, left video games and went over to server software. Uh, that was more traditional for a number of years. I've always been drawn to complexity and like information architecture. So those were a good match. But when the opportunity to 
work on Windows Automotive came up, I was definitely ready. I had been on server for about five years and I was ready for something different, but I didn't know what that something different was. Uh, but I knew that Windows Automotive sounded interesting and challenging. And that was my second time where I got to to start to work with multimodal user interfaces again, interfaces where you may be taking it, uh, traditional text or touch input in addition to other input like voice or gesture. And that was one of those funny situations where you find yourself, you find your career evolving. And through some strange accident, I was the most experienced voice designer on the team. <laughs> which <laughs> which your not, experience was how long? It was light. Yeah, it was, it was light. It was like a year of doing grammar based work on video games where you would talk to Stitch and tell him that you loved him. And suddenly it's like, let's do voice design for automobiles where you might be able to, uh, where you might be able to hurt someone if you get it wrong. You're like, okay, well, but I've always been drawn to fear as a, uh, as sort of a clue is where I should go next in my career. When things seem a little bit intimidating or scary, I'm like, oh, that probably means there's problems worth solving there. Yeah. And luckily there were uh, there were some fantastic program managers. Uh, Stephanie Tomko over at the uh, on the Windows Automotive team helped me a lot, kind of get up to speed on the way they had been working with things. I got it was interesting because natural language was on the forefront at the time. It was just sort of it's like Siri had just launched and Cortana was a rumor, and we got to the point, but then, but we in automotive, we did not have a persistent internet connection. So it was still more traditional grammar based interaction until about halfway through the project when Cortana showed up. And uh, so we <laughs> kind of redid a bunch of our work trying to think about how natural language would affect it. And, and then as sometimes happens in a career, you encounter a setback and that project was canceled. We had spent so much time and poured so much passion into that next release of Windows Automotive, but corporate priorities shifted. And for a while, I was really, uh, really heartbroken. Uh, mm. But often that opens other doors. And that was when Amazon came calling. Right. They uh, they didn't, would not tell me why they were interested except, or what project it was on, except that they, they, they were interested in my voice design experience. And so right. once again, kind of went through, through door and it became clear a few months in why they were interested in voice design because then, mm -hmm. <laughs> they announced the Echo. Oh, um, and that had that that was a. I loved learning and immersing myself in this this technology. And a lot of the folks who were at the forefront of the Echo were uh, they were experts in more speech science and that form of uh, like Sorry, almost computer science. That. Ah, yes. I have a device here. <laughs> you're taught, you're, you called Alexa. Yeah. Yes. My echo look is just right here. And I forgot to mute her. So that's good. Uh, she's a little, she gets, she gets a word in edgewise. You, you find uh, as far as voice design as a specialty or career, you find folks who are sort of self-taught and, and passionate or uh, like myself who came from information architecture or traditional design, it's sort of a graphical focused design. And you find this, the folks who came in from the speech science side, a lot of folks from Nuance, and in, in some cases now, uh, you're getting a lot of those folks are coming into Amazon and Microsoft. Uh, like, tell me what that was another company where a lot of the speech science focused designers came from. But those are the two paths you find uh, if you're if you're going into dedicated voice design right now. 
but they were all so generous with their time and knowledge that the only way I could have been successful in, in what I've been able to do is, is by via some of the, the great, the, uh, just the generosity of knowledge that I experienced with other folks that I worked with on Alexa and on Windows Automotive. So I'm hoping that's why I'm passionate about continuing that kind of like teaching and getting out there and, and spreading the word because uh, there's not a lot of formalized materials yet still about how to design for voice, how it's different, and it's constantly evolving too. It's exciting. Yeah, exactly. So you're talking about a period of time that's what, maybe six years, five years? Uh, from the time I started on Windows Automotive, that was around 2012, and here we are. Yeah, so about six years. Yeah, okay. Um, and <laughs> and I, I just want to point out, like, well, you understand this and anyone who is like looking at transitioning into something that would be like an emerging tech, we see job descriptions for people looking for designers in these areas and they want, you know, years of experience. And obviously that's not happening with voice. <laughs> right? in, in many ways, it's it's almost mathematically impossible with exactly. very few exceptions. Right, <laughs> right, right. So like we have um, lots of designers who um, I hear it often who are interested in transitioning into various emerging tech, but especially now more and more voice because it is getting more popular with not just Amazon, but Google and Microsoft and Microsoft, where you, you're you working now, is really prevalent in the U.S. and now it's becoming more global. And so, you know, that's actually where I'm I'm coming from with this, this series for the podcast, because it is becoming so prevalent and there's so many questions. So here's a really, really common one, which I'm sure that you've heard. Uh, people tend to get pigeonholed into a specific area of design, whether that's mobile or healthcare or automotive or, um, you know, but we know that we all know as designers that we're trained in fundamental design principles and we have many layers. And so it's a common frustration to come across hiring managers who are looking for someone who's already done pretty much what they are looking for someone to do, right? Right. So I, I'm wondering if you've, what advice you have for people who are coming across that area and, and who want to expand into newer territory? It's an interesting question. And I think I have advice for people on both sides of the coin. So if you're trying to get into uh, emerging technologies, the first thing is not to self-select out of it. Because even though those job descriptions are horrifying uh, at times, you're like, how could I ever get that much experience? In in reality, it's more about showing that you have that you're a fast learner and that you have solid fundamentals. And in some cases, taking the initiative to try to pick up some of that emerging technology on your own time. That's one of the great things about the skills frames work, frameworks that exist today. It's relatively easy for someone to start to play around with uh, voice UI to try to ship a skill on their own or play around with it. Even if it's, even if you never release it, just being able to demonstrate that you've put the thought in and started to to started to rotate the way you think, pivot the way you think uh, from a graphical forward to a, a voice forward methodology, for example, uh, that, that goes a, a long way. It might be tough to get a, a really senior position on a new technology without some shift experience. But so I think advice, advice 
number one, uh, point number one would be to to try to seek out those opportunities to sort of do mini hackathons on your own to just play around. There are lots of ways now to play with voice technology that don't require a computer science degree. And it's really once you start experimenting with something where you've built the interaction model, a lot of lessons come home very quickly. But another piece of advice would be that if you are at a larger company or if you are uh, even even at a mid-sized company, you may be able to find to, a way to convince the team you're on to start experimenting with this and uh, this, these technologies. So you don't need to make a career shift to start exploring uh, a new skill set. And I find that there's a ton of sort of latent interest in conversational UI and voice UI across the board, regardless of what field you're in. So it, in many cases, it probably isn't a hard sell as long as you're not stopping core product work. So if you're willing to put in a little extra time, a little extra elbow grease, you may be able to find a way to gain that skill while on the job. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, it's also interesting to see how people react to folks who do have specialized voice UI experience. Because I started to find myself that I was getting it when I was interviewing for new roles, folks would say, well, you're not really qualified for this one because you're a voice designer, not a traditional designer. I'm like, wow, that didn't take long. <laughs> a couple of years in voice design and suddenly I'm, well, that's, that's all you are. You're this all you. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes specialization comes at a cost. And that was one of the reasons I personally made the choice to, to go back to more traditional design after a few years on at Amazon and the Echo Look and, and on Alexa uh, to keep cross training. And in many, uh, what I'm starting to find now is that's placed me in a good position to start to leverage those skills again in a completely new context, which is great. I love, I love charting on, uh, or I love sort of treading the, the sort of unexplored path and, so if you have the the courage to kind of say, okay, great, I've got these skills, I'm going to go cross train a little bit and see how these skills bear fruit later in my career, sometimes interesting things happen. So, and I think a lot of the future of voice UI design is actually going to have to be multimodal. You see the Echo Show now, and that's both voice and uh, graphical interface in a slightly different way than we're we're used to. It's still voice forward, but the screen is present and important. And I think as we talk about inclusion and uh, accessibility, voice UI is great and it is including a, a group of folks who were generally excluded from sort of equal participation in computing before, but it does exclude people with audio disabilities or in situations where they're dealing with people who are dealing with a lot of ambient noise, for example, you can't use voice UI in those situations. And so I think we're super excited about voice UI only right now, but it, in the end, the future is going to be a little bit more seamlessly multimodal mm -hmm. voice only when you need it screens only when you need it, both when you need it. Uh, and, the, and there's a lot of interesting design challenges there too. You kind of need to study the voice fundamentals to prepare yourself for working in that multimodal space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially as it maybe it isn't quite as brand new for us. Now we'll start to see it as just part of what we use similar to we move between laptops and mobile all the time. Exactly. It's a great analogy because at first there were a bunch of folks who specialized in mobile design, but now almost any designer worth their salt needs to be thinking about 
uh, responsiveness and seamless adaptivity between different screen sizes. So I think that's a, a very prescient way of thinking about how the how voice UI is going to play a role in the toolkits of the designers of the future. So another question that I've heard quite a bit is what can translate from what I already know? And so this is for someone who is maybe thinking about emerging tech or specifically voice design um, and hasn't really like dived into it, but they know, you know, there are fundamental design principles that go across various platforms and mediums. So what would you say are some big takeaways of what can translate from screen to voice? Well, I think that the biggest two that have jumped out for me are a malleable mind when it comes to information architecture. So someone who's passionate about that sort of problem solving, but also not so inflexible as to think there's one true information architecture or like a sitemap is is the beginning and end of good design. Because what it, it in voice design, often a sitemap tends to be deep, you know, a traditional graphically oriented information architecture tends to start with seven to eight options and then we drill down from there but voice ui tends to be far broader it's more of a needle in a haystack problem there's a ton of things you can do at the top level and what becomes very tiresome very quickly is drilling deep into a voice interaction it's easy to get lost to lose your place to get sort of disoriented and so you you kind of need to flip your information architecture sideways and in many cases there's this extra layer on, on your information architecture work uh, around the context of the conversation and what the customer is doing uh, that may influence entry and exit points in, in your conversations. So information architecture in general, like if you have solid skills there, you'll know how to ask the right questions about the relationships between objects, concepts, and uh, terminology, and just kind of the customer state at any given time to explore how voice changes those things. And if you've ever done a, a screen flow, uh, an interaction flow, uh, that skill can be, be extremely critical when, when trying to do a traditional command and control based uh, voice UI experience. So this is what you see on Alexa today it tends to be, you know, it's, it's essentially a state diagram, uh, something that we worked with a lot in my computer science education, but representing sort of where the customer is in the journey, what decisions they might make, which is where we're waiting for intent or taking context from another place and uh, which sort of conversational blocks can be reused and where that I spent a lot of time on my work on Alexa notifications and on the Echo Look uh, doing those sorts of interaction flows, but for voice. And if you're a good writer, that can only help you when it comes to uh, to voice design in particular, it's, it, you know, even on a huge project like Alexa, we didn't have the budget really to have a content specialist, a, a, con a content designer assigned to every UX designer. So in many cases, the words you wrote would get discussed and would get critiqued, but the words you wrote had a pretty good chance of making it to your UI. And so... A, a, and you're often also forced to communicate via written documents more with Louis as opposed to uh, you know, your traditional wireframing mm -hmm. kind of hard with voice. Right. Yeah. I personally found storyboarding skills very helpful as well. It's a bit more useful in new products, but context is so important when you're kind trying to com 
convey that, oh, the customer who's interacting with Alexa in this case is having trouble because she has three screaming children around her at the time and her hands are full so she can't touch the device. You know, those sorts of things. Uh, storyboarding can communicate in a way that none of those other deliverables, information architecture flows really drive home. Yeah, definitely, because the context is so important. And the writing uh, is a really good point as well, because I think that's a really undervalued skill for UX. Yes. So one other question um, that I I actually took to Slack when I was looking for, you know, questions that people have who are interested in transitioning into voice specifically. So um, a really good question that came up was, what do people look for when hiring for voice? Since there really, I mean, there isn't really a UI. What does that look like when you put it into a portfolio? It's a great question. And we certainly, I ran into this all the time when we were interviewing voice designers to join the Alexa team. And when I would look at portfolios, I would start out looking for those things I just discussed. Is there any process documentation that gives me insight into uh, how this candidate pursue sort of explores information architecture? Have they worked on complicated experiences that rely on that sort of decision making and flow and understanding the customer state? Uh, or were they more or is the portfolio just a bunch of uh, finely rendered final outputs without uh, conveying the designer's experience in working on those transitions, the interactions, the cliffs, that sort of thing? That, um, you know, so that would be the first pass, checking through the portfolio. If I didn't see any evidence of those skills, would probably move on. But if we found something in in the documentation in the portfolio that that evidenced that curiosity about information architecture or or something else that clicked, maybe they they had a little bit of voice experience, or maybe they're just good at learning. That sometimes we take a chance if someone has clearly worked on some other highly constrained situations. Maybe they worked with gesture. Or maybe they worked on uh, on a bunch uh, some non traditional mobile experiences. If they can adapt to constraints, that would potentially also be a good sign. And then when we move to the sort of interviewing process, it's a little bit tougher because many candidates may encounter a voice design problem for the first time when they do these interviews. Although I hope that will become less of a problem over time as we kind of share voice design literacy. I and I would look in our design problems for an ability to step back and question the problem. And if they could hone in on the challenges around variable content. So we we talk about utterances, which is what the customer says to a device. And within those utterances, we infer intent, which is what the customer wants to do. And there are often typically slots, which are variable spoken content. And Often the design problem is like, uh, design us a flight status app for voice or something like that. Folks who would dig in on where to place that variable content, that that's good. Like if they're kind of looking at things in that way, how people adapting to different ways people might specify that variable content. Uh, folks who had enough un, uh, enough awareness to under, understand and explore error cases, big, that's a big plus because a lot of the time spent in voice design is designing for when things go wrong. Because when it goes right, it's absolutely magical. It's just supernatural conversation. Nothing goes, but 
there are so many ways a voice system can misinterpret what you said. And there's a huge, there's a huge gradient of potential issues, right? Like sometimes if it's a flight status app, if it misunderstands what num flight number you gave it, okay, uh, you probably need to make sure the customer knows what flights flight number you thought it you think you heard so they can correct you. But if it was a flight booking app and it misheard the flight number, that could be much worse. And you might have to change your sort of disambiguation strategy or or your sort of method of verifying what the customers actually said. So any kind of awareness of of those error cases and adapting to them would be a good way to approach a voice design problem. Because in the end, you do spend a lot of time learning the shortcomings of the system you're designing for so that you can help guide customers through the inevitable failures. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And adaptability seems like that would, would be a key. So it's really good to to hear that is what hiring managers would be looking for, maybe a, lo a broader skill set as opposed to like deep experience only in one area. Yeah, especially as we move towards multimodal design, I, I think it's going to be harder and harder to find positions where you're only doing voice. Like it might actually become difficult to to make a case for hiring someone who only does voice because we'll but we'll need folks who understand how those systems combine. Um, I think there would my my take is that there will still be specialized voice designers who are solving really complicated voice problems, of which there are still quite a few uh, conversation, multi-user interactions. Uh, long, context over long periods of time, uh, that sort of thing. But there will be a large number of designers doing voice in parallel with other work. Uh, and so I might not overcorrect, depending on the type of role. I might look for someone who's got a flexible mind, but maybe hasn't gone so deep as to preclude them from doing normal, it's not normal, but uh, traditional graphical design from time to time or in tandem. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Okay, so we're going to do a little bit of a, a pivot here and go into the mini mentoring brainstorm. Okay. So this is where I have gotten a question or a scenario from a UX pro, which is related to the topic we're talking about. Um, and then we'll get your input and, and maybe come up with some ideas for this person. Uh, so this comes from Rhea, and Rhea says... I'm a UX designer at an agency working on mostly mobile apps for four years. I'd really like to work on new kinds of interaction design, but especially interested in voice. I've read the book Conversational UI. I've taken some online courses in voice design, and I have created a pretty basic Alexa skill on my own, but I don't know what the next steps are to actually get any work in the field. All right, then. So it sounds like a lot of the first steps are there. Right. Doing a bit of reading, seeking out the training, which can be hard to find, and even playing with the, the basic Alexa skill. That's uh, Those are all good basic steps. And I know that for some designers who don't come from a computer science background, moving to the next le level of complexity on Alexa skill is a little bit daunting. So the first thing I might work through with Leah is, could we brainstorm something a bit more complex without taking it to the skill stage, right? So let's just run a hypothetical example and cho choose a skill that's more complicated than the one they've already put together and start creating some deliverables. 
essentially do the design portion of the process. Because mm. in the end, you're not being hired necessarily for your ability to execute and, and you know, ship a, a skill. You're being hired for your ability to generate the designs for the skill. And you're probably going to be working with a developer or, or other partners along the way. And so, you know, when I when I teach my workshop, we walk through how to create sort of sample dialogues, which are essentially scripts for compli more complicated voice UI, how to use those to ferret out what your intents are, what, what the potential customer intents are, and eventually transfer that into sort of more complicated flows. And from there, you can sort of winnow down what your prompt list is would be. Like what, what strings would you hand off to somebody who is implementing the system? How would you convey the customer's journey between the different states in your voice UI. What variable inputs do you have coming into the system and what's your strategy for how do you how how you deal with situations where things go wrong and and the uh, slots are misheard. Uh, I think that that's that next step is essentially creating a hypothetical portfolio piece. If uh, assuming that the skill that that they mentioned was maybe one of the sample skills or something that's uh, that's kind of rote. That would be the next sort of step. I mean, but uh, beyond that, can, and beyond traditional, it, just continuing to try to uh, it, to try to expand book knowledge. I think perhaps also pursuing a hackathon. Uh, you know, if that's that's another way to get that portfolio piece that feels like it's missing here. And there's a ton of uh, like Alexa hackathons and things like that. And I think they tend to swing. My perception is they tend to swing more developers. So a designer showing up might have a really unique opportunity to kind of pick a project and help them uh, help guide them through some UX that way. And depending on what metro area you're in, it may be easier or harder to find that kind of a to find that kind of hackathon. But I think there's a lot of stuff out there. And then honestly, uh, throwing your hat in the ring to to interview at a couple of places, because <laughs> in many cases, the design problems you talk through, if you manage to get to that stage, can help you sort of understand what the next steps are. In some cases, when we're sort of trying for a moonshot in our careers, interviewing can be the only way to find out what we're still missing, to find out what people are looking for. And, you know, I, you know, my free time, I'm an actor. And a, a, a lot of times that that's, folks get to that stage in their improv training where really the only thing left to do is to go start auditioning to see what other folks are doing, to see what auditioners are looking for, uh, to figure out what you want to to focus on next. And it can be scary, uh, but it's also just invaluable sort of learning opportunity, even if you don't get those positions. So the good news is the path seems to be going in the right direction. And those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive, or they, they can actually run in parallel. You could start looking at actual job opportunities at the same time that you're, uh, that you're trying to level up that portfolio piece. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that is, that, I mean, I think that's actually really good advice for anyone who's looking at kind of spreading their wings or, or looking to move into a new space, interviewing, you know, not just as a practice run for interviewing, but research into understanding what hiring managers are looking for, which is exactly kind of what was in this question. But the other suggestions that we have for Rhea are taking that that skill development to maybe the, the next level with more complexity, but also 
really um, spending some time on working through that de- the design portion of that process and even as something maybe that could go into a portfolio and then looking for hackathons, which I have to say for voice can be tricky to find, but I think hopefully will become more more commonplace. Also, just going ahead and, and doing those interviews and finding out where the gaps are in your own skills. I think those are really good suggestions for Rhea. I think it's it's funny because I recently learned that, that Netflix encourages their employees to interview, uh, partially because it is sort of seen as this, like you learn what the market's looking for and you sort of double check it on yourself, making sure you know what you're worth and uh, make sure you're still consciously choosing to go into things. It's, it's, it's interesting to kind of pivot your thinking around interviewing, especially since I know as tends to be more of a, like a stereotypically female perspective where we self uh, there's documentation and or research around like, oh, well, we self-select out of opportunities because we viewed the requirements as not exactly matching us. Right. Uh, but taking that uh, understanding that what's asked for and what is available in the market may not always match. Mm-hmm. And just being willing to throw yourself in there, understanding there will be rejection there and not to take it personally, but uh, <laughs> that, that the journey is, is worth it. And I think the other thing, this one's a little tougher if you're not comfortable doing coding, but it, there have been certain points in my career where I sought out like a nonprofit or a volunteer group to work with who had needs uh, that were more specific. And that was, if if I wasn't comfortable doing just purely hypothetical design, like if taking on web work, or in this case, like building maybe a, a light voice skill for a nonprofit mm-hmm. could be a, a good way to get what is actual portfolio experience without needing to switch jobs right away. Yeah. There are tons of, and and maybe you can find another developer or somebody else who can partner with you to make that happen. But if, if what you, sometimes folks just need like specific problems to solve, to make that leap. And there are always organizations that might, might be interested in that sort of help. Yes. Very good point. So looking for uh, your UX for good. Fantastic. So real quickly, before we have to, um, let you go. I want to find out if uh, I'm absolutely going to be linking to you have so many great articles um, that you have written for people who are looking, looking at transitioning into this field or curious about this field. So I will absolutely be linking to those. But what are some other resources that you would recommend for people who think they may want to or looking to transition into this field? There, one of the articles I've written on Medium is is a reading list. So if you have not started that part of your journey, there are several books to to check out. I won't bother listing them all here, but they are. Uh, and there's only like four or five of them, really. Uh, it's it's not an overwhelming set of documentation, and some of them are more tactical, and some of them are more theoretical and research based. So it's a nice sort of balance. I definitely recommend if you're going immersing yourselves in that. If you have not installed a wide variety of skills on your favorite voice assistant, do so because we can learn just as much from skills that are bad than we can as we can from skills that just work magically all the time. And in some cases you learn more. For a while I was helping with some approvals on early Alexa skills and I learned a lot from watching where where things went wrong. (laughs) So there's those are certainly some basics. I think let me it's it's a little tougher when it comes to a uh, more traditional classroom learning. I know 
I'm trying to, so I have a company idea plats for, because specifically I saw this gap in, in voice design education, but, but there's some other topics I'm hoping to teach eventually as well, but I'm hoping the second half of this year for Seattle area folks to launch a in-person workshop that folks will be able to come here instead of going to a far-flung conference to take and also exploring some online course options. But I do believe also there are a few voice design classes on, I think, like Safari Online slash O'Reilly that you can maybe take a look at. Um, and if you get lucky, there may or may not be courses on conversational design at your local design college. I know University of Washington seems to be exploring that topic. And... So it's it may take a little bit more scrounging than if you were looking for just a traditional design education, but there are resources out there. And honestly, the documentation for the the first party suppliers, specifically Amazon and to a lesser extent Google, and maybe uh, the some of the documentation around Cortana and Siri, continues to improve. I also think there's a good running list that ClearLeft maintains of various voice guidelines out there. Um, and if I can find it, I'll tweet that link out. But uh, they've they've been championing voice designs. And if any of you guys are out in London, I will be teaching my workshop at UX London, which I'm very excited about. Nice. So that'll be in, in May. But obviously, that's not a scalable solution for a lot of folks. So try to... <laughs> trying to come up with something uh, something that's a little bit more in reach. Fantastic. And obviously, voice design has just taken off like really quickly. And to your point that it's going to become just part of kind of our everyday design, which we're already seeing that happening at, at a lot of companies. So I think the, the resources will become greater. And all those people that you're going to be teaching in your workshops and classes will go on to teach workshops and classes of their own. So, and they will learn new things because one thing, one of my articles, the little soapbox I get on is the difference between voice design of today and truly conversational experiences. I don't think we're at conversational experiences yet. We don't really bark at our conversational partners like turn on the lights. That's <laughs> not, it's not really polite, uh, nor conversational. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I think there's going to be a whole other second wave of design evolution where we start to, to finesse the difference between a more command and control voice interface, which has a real place. And I think it will continue to be, to uh, have its purpose, but then more of a her style, longer term interaction with the voice assistant or just a, a sophisticated voice enabled system where you, you build up context over time. It's far more conversational and emotionally aware. Uh, that's uncharted territory right now. Mm -hmm. And that's an exciting place for designers to be. Yeah, that is. And that sounds like a whole nother episode, which I would love to have. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, what do you think? When when are we ready to start talking about conversational design as reality? When is that? I think we're already talking about it. We're just trying to, we're still negotiating what the terms of the conversation about conversation are. Uh, I think we're trying, I think as designers, we, we are realizing we need to invite more linguists and psychologists to the table uh, when we start dealing with things like emotion and perception. Mm. Uh, I, I was lucky that the, the program at Carnegie Mellon had a, a decent foundation in cognitive psychology, but I know a lot of self-taught designers don't necessarily get that exposure and move into this voice and uh, voice oriented world, especially 
kind of important to make sure the right people are involved in that conversation. I don't think design can do it alone. And uh, so we're, we're in the early stages and bots are leading a lot of that too. It, yeah. which is a whole other, other topic, Right. but it's, it's all this swirling mass of confusion right now. But once we get the right people invited to the table, we can sort of start exploring what truly conversational interaction means. Still working on getting everybody and all the right people to the table. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining our table and having a slice of cake with us, Cheryl. I really appreciate that. Of course. It's been a really fun conversation. So I am looking forward to having that next conversation about conversational design with you. Yes, I, I will look forward to that as well. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, Cheryl. Thank you. Hey, if you're interested in the topic of transitioning within UX, I really want to hear from you. I would really like to get more questions for upcoming episodes on transitioning in UX. You can send a comment or connect with us on our website, which is uxcake.co or via Twitter at uxcake underscore or our Facebook page at uxcakepodcast or even Instagram at uxcake. As always, thanks so much for joining me for a slice of UX cake.